Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 141, Fred Vars, Murder and Money, the Dark Side of Taylor Swift. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Joining me on Excited Utterance today is a very special guest, Taylor Swift. Well, not really. I wish, right? But I will be talking about Taylor Swift today with our real guest, Fred Vars the Ira Drayton Pruitt Sr. Professor of Law at the University of Alabama School of Law. And why will Fred and I be talking about Taylor Swift today? Well, in his new paper, which is entitled Murder and Money, the Dark Side of Taylor Swift, Fred uses Taylor Swift's music to examine what's referred to as the Slayer Rule, a legal rule that dictates that murderers cannot inherit from their victims. Naturally, then, my conversation with Fred is going to cover burdens of proof. It's going to cover evidentiary requirements at trial. And, of course, it's going to cover some of the best music ever created by Taylor Swift herself. Fred's paper is just a ton of fun using Taylor Swift's music, her lyrics, to examine the Slayer rule. And I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Fred, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So today, we're talking about the burdens of proof, Taylor Swift, and the so-called Slayer Rule. That is an exceptional trifecta, if I have to say so. And I think that just the addition of Taylor Swift alone is going to make for a smash hit episode. But before we we jump into anything too substantive, we're going to have to keep our listeners waiting for a second, because I'm curious, what led you to this particular focus in the first place? Sure. Well, I had actually been doing a more kind of scholarly project related to the Slayer Rule and was excited when one of her recent songs on the Midnight Album is directly on point. But really what brought me to write this particular piece is my daughter. She was 11, desperately wanted to go to the Taylor Swift concert, either in Nashville or Atlanta. We even, and like associates, attempted to buy tickets that first day. No dice. And so I actually, to be honest, took this a little more pop culture turn to try to appeal to Taylor directly for concert tickets. And I failed completely. (laughs) Well, we can only hope that the transition to the podcast medium helps you in your endeavors. I know the tour is winding down, but I think there are more tour dates being announced. So my fingers are crossed for you. Yeah. And we're we're happy to go to Argentina if that's what it takes. (laughs) Absolutely. And I will say that as the podcast host, I'm happy to provide any support that you need on that trip. Just going (laughs) to throw that out there. Thank you. But of course, I loved reading your paper because you not only just talk about Taylor Swift, you actually weave in her songs to do some salient legal analysis. And this is, of course, an audio format. This is a podcast. So it only feels right that we, too, use some of the clips of her songs to tee up these issues. So the first clip I want to play, you already mentioned it. It's from her Midnight's album, the most recent album. This is the hit single Antihero. Here is a bit of that clip. The family. 
All right, so that is definitely just a smash hit, Fred. I don't think there's any denying that. But what does that clip that we just listened to teach us about the law? Yeah, so it actually teaches us quite a lot. And the first thing to kind of step back, we'll be talking about the law of inheritance. Who gets the property? Obviously, the bridge and antihero, all about a will. Daughter-in-law kills for the money and then disappointed by the terms of the will. Two things are really important here. One, big picture for the law of inheritance. The idea generally is to try to give the property to the person that the dead person would want the property to go to. So the really critical point here, though, is you're disqualified from inheriting from a person that you murder. And so the daughter-in-law is hopeful, right, that she's going to inherit. But if they could actually prove that she killed Taylor, right, the narrator of the song, she'd be disqualified and couldn't inherit even if she was in the will. If she was the named person, the law says, wait a minute, murderers surely can't inherit. I mean, it sets a terrible incentive for one, but for a couple other reasons, we don't allow that. And that's the so-called Slayer rule, which again was the project I was already working on. So really excited by the, the song. And the Slayer rule, you know, to my mind, seems sensical enough. There's a lot of logic behind it. How does this application, though, perhaps get a little bit complicated in terms of evidence and proof in the courtroom? Yeah, so it is complicated. We'll talk a little bit about how jurisdictions vary, but I think a good example, burden of proof for listeners who are not lawyers or law students, is sometimes a difficult concept. So a good example, and one that's quite relevant here, would be the O.J. Simpson case, where he was acquitted, the glove didn't fit, of a crime of murder, but then the family of Nicole uh, turned around and sued him with the same allegation that he killed her and succeeded in a civil case. And the way that can happen to make sense of it, to prove a crime and to put someone in jail requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is near certainty, 90% plus is the way it's sometimes quantified. In a civil case, the burden's quite different. All we have to do is convince the jury that it's more likely than not that OJ did it, kind of that 51% likelihood. So, and that's called the preponderance standard. And so jurisdictions differ for the Slayer rule. Some say you've got to have a criminal conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. Others say, no, just a preponderance in a civil case, that's good enough to disqualify a murderer. Well, perfect. I'm quite excited because listening to your answer, I'm realizing this is teeing up another Taylor Swift song that we're going to have to listen to. So here, real quick, is a portion of her song, No Body, No Crime. Good thing Esty's sister's gonna swear she was with me. She was with me, dude. Good thing his mistress took out a big life insurance policy. They think she did it, but they just can't prove it. They think she did it, but they just can't prove it. She thinks I did it, but she just can't prove it. Fantastic, Fred. So again, another great song. But how is this clip helping further illustrate some of these proof problems that we've been talking about in the context of the Slayer rule? This is a really great one. And from, I think, the prior album or the one before Folklore, maybe, or Evermore. My daughter will kill me if I can't get that right. <laughs> um, but the basic idea here is the narrator, again, we think probably Taylor, is taking revenge 
on a deceased friend. And because of this life insurance policy, that's going to cast suspicion on the mistress, right? And that's good because it takes attention away from her, you know, and she will not be convicted of a crime. But she really does point out the problem. And over and over, the refrain in that song, you just can't prove it. Can't prove that he killed his wife to begin with. Can't prove that I'm about to kill him in revenge. And so it's just all about the proof problem. And the other kind of wrinkle here, if in fact you could prove what wasn't true, right? That the, the woman who took out the life insurance policy, the mistress really did kill in order to get the life insurance, she would be barred by the Slayer rule as well. It applies not just to property, but also to insurance proceeds. So it's exactly a proof problem. And once again, it's the Slayer rule. And I'm happy to provide a little bit of help here, Fred. No body, no crime does come from Evermore. Okay, good. You Thank know, you. We have to clear that up for our <laughs> listeners. I know that they were in suspense there for a couple of minutes, but suspense no longer. But your answer, I think, was great because it tees up the big issue that we're analyzing that we've been talking about already a little bit, which is what level of proof is indeed required for the Slayer rule. And I want to return to something that you mentioned earlier in the podcast, and that is kind of this descriptive analysis right now on the ground of what different jurisdictions are doing relative to the Slayer rule. So what have different courts, different jurisdictions said about the level of proof necessary to implicate the Slayer rule? Yeah. So as I was mentioning before, in some states, it's not even just the burden of proof. It's literally you have to have a criminal conviction before someone's disqualified. And that, of course, requires, as I mentioned, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But you really, like if the prosecutor decides not to prosecute, they can still inherit. So there's a procedural wrinkle there too. But the big distinction that right about in the paper is really just the actual standard. What degree of confidence should we have that someone killed the decedent in order to disqualify them from inheriting? And so the division is beyond a reasonable doubt, as I described, almost near certainty versus, well, pretty sure, but not 100% sure. So that's how it breaks down. And let's kind of shift now. That's kind of the descriptive landscape, what's happening on the ground. Let's turn normative for a second, thinking about what the standard should be in the abstract. First, do we have any insight, any research on what the Slayer rule standard should be? Yeah, so there is some research. What I discovered, and this goes back to the, the bigger project I was working on when the song came out and the disappointment with the tickets, there isn't much empirical research, if any. So people make assertions like, I mean, of course, murderers inheriting is bad from a societal moral perspective, but a really important premise, you know, that goes back to the whole idea of inheritance, the decedent wouldn't want the person who killed them to get their property. And so people make all sorts of assertions about what, you know, in this circumstance, this type of killing, or what is it a negligent killing? Like, what would the decedent want? And they make all sorts of assertions, not actually asking people. So part of what I did, and we'll maybe talk about the results later, was just have a survey and ask people, okay, if this happened and there wasn't a criminal conviction, but we still think they probably did it, would the decedent want that person to inherit? And to sort of jump ahead a second, the answer is no. And so people favor the preponderance standard, that lower standard, the idea that, look, the person probably killed them. That's a good enough reason that they shouldn't inherit. We don't want guilty people to inherit. And, and so we want a lower standard. And so I think that's a strong normative argument saying, look, big goal here, do what the decedent would want. Here's what survey sample says decedents would want in that circumstance. It's a super interesting finding, Fred. And I'm curious now about our colleagues in the legal academy. Do we have any legal scholars who have also weighed in on 
the Slayer rule? And are they equally on board as potentially the public is with a preponderance standard for the Slayer rule? You know, it's really interesting. One of the best articles about the Slayer rule was written by a real giant in trust and estates, Mary Louise Fellows. And she actually argued for an intermediate standard. So I've been talking preponderance, 51%, beyond a reasonable doubt, 90%. But her argument was this, to label someone a murderer (laughs) is really damaging to their reputation. And so we need to take that into account. And so what she argued for is to say, look, that sort of injury to reputation should require a higher standard, not beyond a reasonable doubt, but a standard that we call this intermediate standard clear and convincing evidence. It's hard to know if juries really understand what the words mean, but the idea is maybe 75% likely that the person murdered the decedent. And so that's what Professor Fellows argued for. I think a couple of jurisdictions went along with that, in addition to the split I already talked about with the preponderance and beyond a reasonable doubt. So that was her argument. And again, that was one of the leading papers on the Slayer Rule, quite influential, and she's a really, really good scholar. Well, what I'm hearing then is that we're having differing opinions, potentially between legal scholars, members of the public, about what the standard should be for the Slayer Rule. So perhaps what we should do then is appeal to even a higher authority. And there's only one that comes to my mind right now, Taylor Swift herself, right? Of course. Agreed. Has Taylor given us mere mortals any insight on what the standard should be for the Slayer Rule to apply? She has, and particularly her whole album, Reputation, is all about this issue. So I think she'd be quite sympathetic to Professor Fellows and sort of, she did something bad. I mean, we can get into the songs on that album, but she's very sensitive to her reputation, certainly. And I think other people's reputation, false reputations. I don't know if we'll play the clip, but witch burning comes up on that album. So she's not a fan of relying on a small amount of evidence to impose large penalties. And let me uh, jump in here real quick, Fred. I think it'd be good for our listeners to give a little sample of that clip. So this is a short clip from her song from the Reputation album, I Did Something Bad. Here we go. They're burning all the witches even if you aren't one. They got their pitchforks and proof. The receipts and reasons They're burning all the witches Even if you aren't one So light me up Light me up Yeah, so that little clip Exactly the one I was thinking of You're gonna burn the witches Even if you aren't one So she's quite concerned If the penalty is, you know The death penalty or burning Which is really torture About getting it right She shouldn't want any possibility You get it wrong But more broadly Those themes are all about injury to one's reputation. That's something that she certainly felt and the whole Kardashian nonsense and everything. The drama around that, and she took time off from her career. And so damaged reputation, I feel like, is something that Taylor, again, values, recognizes more than most of us, who's nobody knows who we are. Our reputations may not matter, but her certainly does. And that was really hard for her. So I think she would be, we have to guess, right? She didn't tell us exactly, but I think she might go along with Professor Fellows and ask for maybe at least that intermediate level of proof. So what about you, Fred? Do you agree with perhaps Fellows and and Taylor herself that, yeah, higher standard of proof is needed for the Slayer rule to apply, or instead is the preponderance standard the right standard that we should be pursuing? Yeah, so I prefer preponderance. I know this is going on on a limb here. 
Professor Fellows is a giant in the field. I am a small person in the field. So disagreeing with her is one thing, but of course, disagreeing with Taylor or what we suspect might be Taylor's position. Yeah, that's, it's pretty bold. But the, the reason I go that direction is one, the survey I already talked about. People don't like even probable murderers to inherit. And you know what? That's the fundamental goal here is to try to get the outcome that the person would want. If they probably killed them, well, then the person probably didn't want them to inherit. So I think that the survey may be the strongest piece. The other thing to respond directly to the reputation point that was persuasive to fellows and I think would be persuasive to Swift, being accused of murder is already pretty stigmatizing. So the reputational harm of a court officially saying, oh, and you get to lose your inheritance or you must lose your inheritance, I think that marginal impact on your reputation should be given quite that much weight. And then the final thing is to come back to the OJ example, because that is directly on point here. If you applied the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, we know from the criminal case, the state couldn't prove it, that he actually, you know, at that level of certainty killed Nicole. If that's the requirement for the Slayer rule, when he loses that civil case and a jury says, no, we think you killed her, he could be using his inheritance from Nicole to pay the family for having murdered Nicole. That can't be right. The way the law kind of works together, the criminal, the civil, and the law of torts, there's no way a probable murderer should be able to pay a judgment against them for the murder, right? So it's just for consistency. I think you've got to have the preponderance standard. Well, Fred, this has been such a fun and fantastic podcast. I only have one more question for you. And that's our traditional last question with a slight modification. What's next for the literature here? And specifically, perhaps even more broadly, what else can Taylor Swift teach us about the law? Yeah, so that's a great question. And well, two things. One, the sort of law of the slayer rule, I hope will become more empirical. I hope other people will pick up the the charge there and try to figure out what do people really want in these complicated scenarios. For one significant example, the insanity defense, person who kills because of a mental illness, should they still inherit? I mean, they're maybe guilty of a crime, but those are disputed issues. And I really think we should just be asking people. But Taylor, she's done a lot. She's got so many lyrics and, you know, that the albums just keep coming. And if anything, I think, and, you know, Evermore and Folklore, Midnight's as well, the lyrics are getting more and more complex and more interesting. It's not always a love song. And so issues of inheritance. I mean, we just saw three examples where she's talking about, I mean, not in those words, the Slayer rule. So. I can't think of a specific issue right now where Swift lyrics are directly relevant, but I think that may happen more, particularly as she writes more diverse songs. Well, Fred, it has been awesome having you on the show. And again, best of luck, fingers crossed on that search for some Taylor Swift concert tickets. Thank you so much. I should note, we did actually pony up the cash and my daughter and my wife went to Nashville. So we did get the tickets eventually, but not from Taylor herself. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. But as every Taylor Swift fan knows, you can't just go once. You have to go again and again and again. And so (laughs) my fingers will remain crossed for you. Thank you. So stepping back momentarily, I thought Fred's paper today was just as insightful as it was fun. His commentary on the Slayer rule, I thought was simply fantastic. You know, I really enjoyed discussing with Fred issues surrounding the burdens of proof and other evidentiary issues that arise in the context of the Slayer rule. 
At the same time, his use of Taylor Swift's music as a vehicle for exploring that legal issue I thought was both entertaining and quite effective. In fact, it was so effective that I was left wondering other ways in which Taylor Swift's music might teach us about evidence law naturally. And so, in what is perhaps the most well-received TA assignment that I have ever given out, I asked my TA to explore other evidentiary issues that arise in Taylor Swift's music. And my TA did not disappoint. In one song, for example, and I'm just going to read these lyrics for the benefit of all our listeners. If I were to sing, I think you know the whole podcast would have to close down. But in one song, Taylor sings, All you are is mean and a liar and pathetic and alone in life and mean. Now, it seems to me that that is a classic example of character evidence. But perhaps John Mayer, who was the subject of that particular lyric, perhaps he deserved it ever so slightly, right? In another lyric, we hear Taylor Swift sing, quote, I heard that you've been out and about with some other girl. Well, if that's coming into the courtroom, that sounds like classic hearsay to me. In still another lyric, Taylor Swift is now talking about someone else, I believe it's Jake Gyllenhaal at this point, at least according to my TA, being, quote, casually cruel in the name of being honest. That sounds like a Rule 403 situation to me, right? We have the probative value of someone being honest, but we have the prejudicial effect of someone being casually cruel. So stepping back then, seems to me that someone could teach an entire course on the federal rules of evidence just using Taylor Swift's music. Of course, what Fred demonstrated to all of us today is that her music can be a great vehicle for exploring legal issues. And given Taylor Swift's ubiquitous cultural influence, I think incorporating her music, some of her lyrics into our evidence courses could be a great way to engage our students. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the University of Arkansas School of Law. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Kira Hammond, and background music is provided by Kirsten Castle Greer, Felix Wong, and Alex Crew. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you will join us again next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>